What's happening in the world right now coming up on NTD News. First, our top stories. More is revealed about the U.S. soldier who sprinted into North Korea. A witness describes how it happened. Could legal trouble in South Korea have been the motive? House Republicans say they want to protect Americans from a ban on gas stoves. Meanwhile, Democrats are arguing they're not actually planning such a ban, accusing Republicans of making things up. Homeschooling, homesteading, and homemaking. See how a former school principal embarked on a new adventure after hearing an inner calling. Would Americans hold up if there's a recession? An analysis says families aren't rebuilding their savings fast enough. Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers. Our top news, more information is emerging about the U.S. soldier who fled into North Korea on Tuesday. Court documents and a lawyer representing Travis King reveal he faced two assault allegations and was fined in South Korea for damaging a police car. That's as the U.S. military scrambles to establish the fate of King after he made an unauthorized crossing of the inter-Korean border. A Seoul court said on September 25th last year, King punched a man in the face at a club several times, but the case was settled. Two weeks later, on October 8th, police officers responded to a report of another altercation involving King and tried to question him. According to court documents, King continued with his, quote, aggressive behavior without answering questions from police. After being put in a police car, he shouted expletives against Koreans, the Korean army, the Korean police, and damaged the door of the vehicle. A copy of court documents reviewed by Reuters Wednesday showed that King pleaded guilty to assault and destruction of public goods. On February 8th, the Seoul Western District Court fined him the equivalent of $4,000. A spokesman for U.S. Forces Korea declined to confirm whether King had been in South Korean or U.S. military detention. One of the lawyers who represented him at the time told Reuters that King had spent time in U.S. military detention since the October case. King's motivations for his high-stakes gambit, meanwhile, remain unclear. A New Zealand woman says she saw the U.S. soldier who broke away from the tour group and sprinted into North Korea. Someone ran close to me um, very fast, and I thought, what is going on? Um, he, I, I didn't think anyone who was sane would want to go to North Korea. It, it, it all happened pretty quickly. Um, I probably only saw him running for like a few seconds, and that's all it would have taken um, to get uh, across the border. And then, you know, a, a couple of seconds after I saw him, that's when the soldiers shouted and started running after him. Leslie says she thought it might have been a stunt so the soldier could take a video at the border fence for posting on social media. She said tours to what is known as the joint security area of the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea are very popular. But American and South Korean guards were not able to stop U.S. Army soldier Travis King from his border sprint. Around 40 tourists were in the tour group. The group had just left one of the iconic blue buildings that straddles the border between the two Koreas and is used for negotiations when King suddenly ran between the structures toward the north. House Republicans accusing the Biden administration of wanting to ban gas stoves without knowing how the home appliances actually work. Meanwhile, Democrats say it's not a ban and that their proposals would only be beneficial to Americans. Here are the highlights from yesterday's hearing. There are plenty of reasons to be concerned about the coordinated efforts between radical environmental activists and subsequent agency rulemakings that stand to impact even the smallest aspect 
of our daily lives. A House Oversight Subcommittee on Tuesday held a hearing titled The Biden Administration's Regulatory Assault on Americans' Home Appliances. The Department of Energy proposed a rule which is meant to reduce emissions from household appliances. Republicans call it a ban on gas stoves, which Democrats vehemently deny. I regret that this committee continues to hold hearings on things that do not exist, like a bogus ban on gas stoves. One of the Republicans later responded to her, indicating the proposed rule will effectively become a ban. To the gentlelady from the other side of the aisle says it's not a ban. According to my figures, 4% of current gas stove tops available in the market today meet the, the rule, which means 96% of them don't. The sole witness at Tuesday's hearing was Geraldine Richmond. She's the Department of Energy Undersecretary for Science and Innovation. Republicans are now accusing her of not knowing the impact of the department proposed rule partly because she couldn't answer this question. If you have a gas stove in your home right now, there's a gas line coming to it and probably a 110 connection. Do you know what it takes to put an electric stove in your home? You have any idea? Uh, no, I don't, but I do. Here, I do. You got to run a 220 line, which means you got to probably have to get an electrician because unless you know how to do that yourself, you're playing with potentially losing your life and electrocuting yourself. The proposed rule wouldn't outlaw currently installed gas stoves, but new ones sold on the market. We're not requiring anyone to change to an electric stove. Not so when your stove dies, when your stove no longer works, uh -huh. and the Department of Energy has determined you can't buy one of these, you've got to buy one of the expensive ones or an electric one, because that's all you can afford, and then you've got to run electricity. I'm just asking, have you included that in your calculation? Democrats calculated that the Inflation Reduction Act allocates $4,000 to any household changing to electrical stoves. However, Republicans at the hearing argue that changing a home's electrical connections will cost more than that, ending up hurting the consumer. Flight delays and cancellations, missed weddings, reunions, and holidays. It's become a serious problem. What's going on here? Joining me now to discuss is U.S. commercial airline pilot Jason Kunish. Jason, airlines can't control the weather, but weather-related delays and cancellations seem to be increasing. What's going on here? This is a problem that seems to have been uh, made over the last several years. People in the industry have been warning about staff shortages, funding shortages, and overbooking of flights. And when you have this perfect storm like peak uh, travel with peak weather delays that happen over summers, uh, you get this perfect storm of uh, lack of customer service and stranded passengers. And in the spring of this year, the FAA warned that a shortage of air traffic controllers in New York you know, could put a uh, really hindered flight this summer. Is that part of what we're seeing here? It is. It's not just New York. The, the country is divided by certain sectors. You've got New York sector, Houston, Salt Lake, and they're cons all considerably understaffed by almost half, with no supervisors oftentimes uh, searching or overlooking these sectors. And so when you have weather pop up that normally could be rerouted around, uh, you because you've got less people looking at these scopes, you have to have everyone jammed in on certain corridors in the sky. And the lack of staffing, the lack of funding, then leads to congested airways, congested airports, delayed flights, and stranded passengers. And what are airlines saying to all these disgruntled passengers, you know, complaining about 
um, rebooking flights and so on? It, it, the, the end result seems to be uh, come across as being callous or want of an attitude that doesn't care. However, the, the, the frontline workers, the customer-facing employees, they do care. The problem, though, is that their metric that they're graded under is not customer service-centric. Service oftentimes, they're forced to leave passengers at the gate because they have to get this uh, door closure metric. What's the answer to this, Jason? We know there's a few measures being considered. There are. There's there's increased work relations, I guess you can put it that way, between uh, management and the work groups. Um, changing these metrics I'm, I'm discussing now, but also there's two bills uh, going through Congress, or, or parts of bills, I should say. One of them lowers the entry requirements to be a commercial airline pilot. That's not a good idea at all. Uh, the other one is to raise the uh, mandatory retirement age from 65 to 67. That's a short-term fix. That would, you know, extend this problem two years down the line, but it doesn't fix any of the root problems. And so that's not a good idea either. At best, that's a Band-Aid. And Jason, we know about AI changing all kinds of industries. Is there any emerging technology in the airline industry that could help mitigate some of these problems? There are. There are some pushes to get uh, go from two pilot to one pilot systems. That is years and years in the future. Uh, and then also you've got to change all of the complex systems that are behind the scenes that get an airplane into the sky to accommodate that. I don't see that happening. Um, it's, it, it's, it's as we discussed just a second ago, it's, it's a management work group issue. It's a air traffic control funding issue. And if we can fix those, those are short-term fixes. Those, those are uh, things that are, can be fixed in a relatively short amount of time, as opposed to the AI system that is, it's, I don't see it being uh, realistic in the next 20 years. U.S. commercial airline pilot Jason Kunish, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. In our next segment, you'll see how motherhood helped a school principal realize it was time for a major change. And TD's Daniel Monahan spoke with homeschooler and homesteader Mandy Davis about her new life and passion. Mandy Davis says she got into education really wanting to make a big impact. But over time, she became disillusioned, encountering teacher shortages, mental health crises, and schools spending too much time on hot topic points. She felt parents should play a bigger role as well. As a parent, you want to know that you're able to consent and to make the best decisions for your children. When you can't do that, when you can't have any say, um, it's hard. Motherhood helped her realize that the education system wasn't the place for her anymore. And she didn't want her kids there either. And so Davis decided to give homeschooling a whirl. Suddenly, something that had vanished from their lives returned, time. And we're done homeschooling in a day, any time between 90 minutes and four hours. I always think personally of, you know, three to four hours a day being a really long day to be learning. Can you talk a little bit about the creativity and freedom you feel with homeschooling? Being home and letting my children find their love of learning. My goal isn't to tell them this is what you need to know. My goal is to teach them this is how you learn. This is how you synthesize information. This is how you evaluate. Um, this is how we analyze. 
giving them the skills to be learners for life um, instead of, you know, testing over a specific set of, can you memorize these facts? Davis says the results were soon in. My kids' confidence have gone skyrocketed. Um, I've, I've watched them become confident learners. I've watched their autonomy in learning grow. I've watched them have time to connect better um, to nature and, and, and their creative side simply because we have more time. Being outside and not being within four walls has been very important to us. And how do you solve the need for community for the children? Building community is so much easier when you're homeschooling because you have the time. Davis and her family aren't just homeschooling, they're also homesteading. This has been something that we're able to do and learn together. And um, just learning the self-sufficiency has been amazing. We have, you know, four goats, 16 chickens, four dogs, two cats, and we're just out here. At, oh, and five ducks now. And we're just out here learning about them and, and learning um, about our garden and growing food and raising food. And you can check out Davis's blog at homebuilteducation.com and her Instagram at homebuilteducation. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. When we return, an American cosmetics giant is hacked. The company is still trying to figure out what happened and what data was compromised. And the U.S. Commerce Department blacklists two Israeli-owned companies. It says they have been involved in major cyber attacks. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. A hacker was able to gain access to cosmetics company Estee Lauder's internal system. The New York-based company did not say when the hack was first discovered. Estee Lauder released a statement on July 18th. The company says once it became aware of the incident, it took down some of its systems and began an investigation with third-party cybersecurity experts. The company says it thinks a hacker obtained some data from its systems and that it's still trying to figure out what that data is specifically. Estee Lauder owns other cosmetics brands that include Bobbi Brown, Clinique, La Mer, and Tom Ford Beauty. The company said the cybersecurity incident has caused disruption to parts of its business operations without providing further details. It said it expects further ongoing disruptions. The U.S. Commerce Department has placed two European-based spyware companies on its trade blacklist. The Israeli-owned companies have raised national security concerns. The blacklisted companies are Intellexa SA in Greece and its entity Intellexa Limited in Ireland, and Kytrox AD in North Macedonia, along with its entity Kytrox Holdings CRT in Hungary. The companies will no longer be able to conduct business or make transactions with American companies. This restriction reduces their ability to access software and technology they could use to develop surveillance tools. Officials say the move is because the companies spread hacking tools that threaten privacy and security internationally. According to its website, Intellexa develops and integrates technologies to empower law enforcement agencies and intelligence agencies to pr help protect communities. Kytrox does not appear to have a website. Reports say both companies have been linked to a number of alleged surveillance incidents.
U.S. production of defense equipment is at record highs. Here with me live is NTD Business's Don Ma. How you doing, Don? Can you tell us more? Yeah, sure, Chris. I'm good. Um, so according to the newest Federal Reserve data, uh, production of defense equipment by American industries is at record levels. Um, higher defense spending is also supporting the U.S. economy um, in terms of GDP. The previous high was in December 2019, uh, and we have surpassed that now. What has contributed to the higher production? Well, a, a big factor is the war in Ukraine. It's de definitely, for sure, a contributor. So we're spending, we're sending weapons to the battlefield. We're also increasing production of bullets, vehicles, and drones to supply Ukraine. To to supply Ukraine, and at at the same time, we're replenishing our own supplies. So is this a good thing, Don? Yeah, you know, Chris, uh, I was wondering the same thing earlier today because there are a lot of voices out there uh, that are against this, and certainly there's an argument for that. Um, but, you know, there's other, other voices. For example, if we don't help Ukraine, then Russia may very well win. And let's say, for example, it was China right now who invaded Taiwan. You know, the question is, should the U.S. let China win that battle? You know, I... There could be a parallel here. Um, earlier, I actually asked a military expert this exact question, so let's hear his argument. And now joining me is Rick Fisher, military expert and senior fellow at the International Assessment and Strategy Center. Now, Rick, uh, the U.S.'s industrial production of defense equipment hitting a record high, is this a good thing? Absolutely. Uh, the United States has basically been out of a war production level of military production activity for three or four generations. Uh, the United States is now facing uh, potential global military threats, the prospect of fighting or having to fight two, maybe three wars uh, in Europe, on the Taiwan Strait, and on the Korean Peninsula. Uh, our enemies have been preparing for three wars for the last 30 years. Uh, it is long overdue for the United States to ramp up military production in order to build the stockpiles necessary to prove to North Korea, to China, and to Russia that the West is ready to meet them on the battlefield so that they don't make that decision to actually go there. The Ukraine war, while awful and tragic for the people of Ukraine, has served as a vital wake-up for NATO, for the United States, and for America's allies in Asia. They now see that war is on the horizon, and they are all increasing their capacity to produce military materiel, as well as they are building up their military capabilities. All of this is good, but it has to happen even faster. Now, there's another dynamic to this. The war in Ukraine, uh, in large part, is contributing to this uh, increase in production of defense equipment. And the U.S. is providing aid to Ukraine, so that means we're giving away these weapons to Ukraine. Um, so let me get your comments on this dynamic. Is it still a good thing when we're giving these weapons away? Well, 
it's far better to give weapons to Ukraine than to give them our young men, young women. And if we do not prevail in Ukraine, if Ukraine is not able to remain free, Russia is going to start more wars. China is going to be tempted to start wars. And our younger generation is going to be facing something they have that, that American youth have not had to face since the 1960s, and that is a, a draft, because there will be no other way for the United States to, to meet the demands of two, possibly three wars, than to re-implement the draft. Now, the worry is, though, is this depleting U.S. stockpiles? What are your thoughts? Well, absolutely, it is. But again, uh, this is the choice that is forced upon us. We either help Ukraine materially and help them fight their war by themselves, or we get in the act. We donate, if you will, the lives of our young people. And I believe most Americans would rather uh, give Ukraine the materiel to win their war rather than give them our young people. All right, Rick Fisher, thank you so much for your comments today. Thank you, Don. J.P. Morgan Chase says that American families are building their savings accounts back up slower than they did in the past. Analysts at the bank's think tank say customers have 10 to 15 percent more money in their accounts than they did in 2019. That's good, but when you consider inflation, a different story emerges. Two years ago, top earners had enough money to continue normal spending for 43 days without any income. Now they have just over a month's worth of spending money. That means fewer people have the resources to weather a recession than in the past. Coming up, 19 days straight at over 110 degrees. Phoenix has set a new record, and it may not be over anytime soon. And we'll take a closer look at geothermal heat pumps. Some experts say these are an efficient option for heating and cooling homes. Find out more when we return. Welcome back, everyone. The city of Phoenix, Arizona, broke a heat record yesterday from almost 50 years ago when temperatures reached above 110 degrees for the 19th straight day. Some said it felt like opening an oven. Here's the story. Temperatures above 110 degrees Fahrenheit might not be the ideal conditions for a hike, but Amit Bagoji and his friend are still out on the trails near Phoenix, Arizona anyway. They're among the few braving heat that broke records on Tuesday, and it sounds like they won't be doing so for long. It's like you open an oven door and it's the heat wave. Like when you open like an oven, that's what it feels like. Exactly what it feels like. People have been sweltering in the city's scorching heat since June the 30th. In recorded history, Phoenix hasn't seen this many days in a row of temperatures above 110 degrees. The last time it came close was 1974 almost 50 years ago. In case some were unaware, billboards across the city advertised the soaring temperatures. Those were 112 degrees at just after 1 p.m. local time, but soared as high as 118 hours later, according to the National Weather Service. Tom Frieders is the warning coordination meteorologist at the services office in Phoenix. 
He says there's no indication of the record heat abating anytime soon. The forecast continues to, to call for temperatures from 115 to 120, continuing to expand across the region through the end of the week and possibly into the weekend. So uh, we're, we're in this for uh, quite a while yet. And again, it's that prolonged heat that becomes more serious. The Arizona Public Service said in a release on Monday that electricity demand has soared to an all-time peak for a second week in a row, thanks to demand from air conditioners. It mirrors similar trends in Texas and elsewhere, as a massive heat dome parked over the southern and western United States keeps large numbers of Americans under extreme heat advisories. It is pretty expansive and uh uh, abnormally strong for, for even this time of year. And so uh, the impacts are being felt by, by millions and millions of people across the country. The record-breaking heat is just one part of the unusual weather being experienced across the U.S. Air quality is poor in many areas, including Rapid City in South Dakota, as smoke from Canadian wildfires wafts across the border. A tropical storm is also hitting Hawaii. Scientists say such extreme weather events are likely to become more commonplace. Air source heat pumps are trending, but some experts say geothermal ones are an even more efficient option. Geothermal heat pumps use underground temperatures instead of outdoor air. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the latest. A family in Cortland, New York is installing a geothermal heat pump. More than one-third of all U.S. energy consumption is from heating and cooling homes and buildings. We are the first, I would say, we are the harbingers in this area to go in for geothermal. Nobody else, none of our neighbors or friends have done this. So they're all looking up to us to see how uh, the performance is going to be. Dandelion designs, installs, and maintains its own systems in New York, Connecticut, and Massachusetts. The company is currently working on a partnership with Leonard Corp, one of the largest home builders in the country. Future homes could potentially be built with geothermal instead of natural gas. Geothermal is evolving rapidly. We are seeing it go into much more urban spaces. So right now there are several New York City housing projects that are switching over to geothermal because it's cost effective. The sticker prices for ground sources are higher than traditional systems, but the Inflation Reduction Act offers a tax credit as an incentive. There's an amazing policy landscape helping homeowners afford this technology. So on the federal level, we have the investment tax credit where the federal government just pays for 30% of the system. A lot of states also have state tax credits. So a unit contains refrigerant, a fluid that can easily absorb a lot of heat. In summer, the water in the loop dumps heat into the ground. In winter, it pulls heat from the earth indoors. A heat pump can move heat from the ground or the air outside into your house. And the most efficient way to heat your house with a heat pump would be to use the ground because in the winter, the ground is much warmer than the air is on a cold winter day. Besides the cost and the yard disruption, there can be permitting delays, but they could be the right option for some. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Coming up, exports plunge, the economy slides. Beijing says an extremely severe situation is facing its foreign trade. And Japan's prime minister responds to criticism from the Chinese regime on the country's wastewater disposal from its nuclear plant. We'll return with that and more after the break.
Thanks for staying with us. The Biden administration is suspending funding for the Wuhan Institute of Virology. That follows a months-long review that determined the Chinese Research Institute was not compliant with federal safety regulations. The Department of Health and Human Services is also barring the Wuhan Institute from doing business with the federal government going forward. The lab has not received funding from the National Institutes of Health since July 2020. The facility plays a central role in theories that the COVID-19 pandemic may have originated from a lab leak there in 2019, but investigators have, have yet to reach a definitive conclusion on where the coronavirus originated. How's China's economy doing in real terms? When it comes to foreign trade, Beijing's Ministry of Commerce acknowledged that the situation is extremely severe. Since the beginning of this year, the external challenges faced by foreign trade have indeed increased significantly. China's exports shrank last month at the fastest pace in three years. Authorities said the country's non-financial outbound direct investment was up more than 20 percent in the first half of the year, but actual use of foreign capital fell nearly 3 percent from a year earlier. Policymakers are dealing with export controls from the West plus falling factory activity and rising unemployment at home. Officials said they will face a severe and complex external environment in the second half of the year. The Japanese prime minister is defending the plan to release wastewater from a nuclear plant that was hit in the 2011 tsunami. The Chinese regime is the biggest critic. We will give the international community a detailed explanation of our country's efforts with a high degree of transparency. I strongly urge the Chinese side to engage in a debate based on the scientific evidence. Kashida told reporters that the International Nuclear Energy Agency concluded that Japan's plan to release the water into the Pacific Ocean is in line with international safety standards. The water was treated with advanced liquid processing system methods to make it safe. The prime minister was speaking in Qatar on the final leg of a Gulf tour focused on securing energy supplies and promoting Japanese technology. Japan is set to start releasing more than one million metric tons of water from the wrecked Fukushima power plant this summer. The Chinese regime has emerged as the most vocal of those critics, saying the plan would endanger the environment and human lives. As Tokyo plans to discharge the treated wastewater into the Pacific, some restaurants in Hong Kong are busy finding substitutes for Japanese seafood. Now the city is considering whether or not to ban fish and shellfish from the area. NTD's Andrew Thomas has today's catch. The Hong Kong government is contemplating a ban on seafood imports from several Japanese regions. A number of East Asian countries have raised concerns about radioactive wastewater being dumped into the Pacific Ocean. Some restaurant owners say they could get their seafood from other sources and change menus. Our purchasing department has been trying to look at whether we can find products from other places to replace those from the other five prefectures that will be added, for example, from Taiwan, Korea or Australia to buy ingredients from other places. Hong Kong was Japan's second biggest market for seafood exports after mainland China. The financial hub purchased $546 million worth of products from the country last year. If there's really the release of the wastewater and an import ban on some prefectures, it will be very hard to find anything to replace Japanese oysters. There's nothing we can do about it. We could try to find oysters from other prefectures or change to other countries. 
The city's Japanese restaurants could find substitute seafood products, but it could hurt their reputation. If the import of supplies is from other countries, other places, these kinds of Japanese-style restaurants won't be so authentic. They won't be like 100% Japanese. They'll seem more like fusion-style restaurants. The image and business of these restaurants will definitely be affected. A massive earthquake and tsunami in 2011 destroyed the Fukushima nuclear plant's cooling systems. Three reactors melted down, releasing large amounts of radiation. Japan plans to soon gradually release the slightly radioactive water after being diluted to what it says are safe levels. But some diners aren't too concerned. I often go to Japan, and so I'm not that worried. I'm here now in a Japanese restaurant. I trust the Japanese authorities. I'm relaxed about it. The UN nuclear agency has endorsed the plans. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Up next, the head of the United Kingdom's famed MI6 spy agency is calling on disgruntled Russians. He's asking for intelligence that could be used to stop the war. And why did Russia pull out of the Black Sea grain deal? What will this mean for the U.S.? We speak to a global politics expert when we return. Thanks for staying with us. The head of Great Britain's MI6 intelligence service invites Russians frustrated with the war to provide intelligence. He says it will help end the war. Many Russians are wrestling with the same dilemmas and the same tugs of conscience as their predecessors did in 1968. I invite them to do what others have already done this past 18 months and join hands with us. Our door is always open. We will handle their offers of help with the discretion and professionalism for which my service is famed. Their secrets will always be safe with us. And together, we will work to bring the bloodshed to an end. It was a rare public speech by the head of British intelligence. Moore said Russians may be moved to cooperate with MI6 due to what he called the inexorable decay of President Putin's government. He said this was shown by the Wagner Group's mutiny in June, saying Wagner leader Evgeny Prigozhin was utterly created by Putin, but still turned on him. He also said if Russian mercenaries could mutiny against their own government, they might do the same in African countries where they were posted, adding Russia had no interest in peace and stability in African nations. Russia announced on Monday it would exit a deal that permits shipments of grain out of the Ukraine via the Black Sea. How will this move impact the world and what's being done about it? We speak with the president of the International Strategic Studies Association, Gregory Copley, to find out. Gregory Copley, thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be with you. How will the cancellation of this deal affect the U.S.? Well, it's, uh, it will affect the U.S. in that grain prices around the world are going to go up as supply uh, is tightened. Uh, that's already a problem in the United States where we see rising food prices because of problems in the agricultural sector. So it's going to be a problem around the world. Rising uh, grain prices globally are going to 
uh, hit economies and hit the, uh, the, the low-income populations of most countries. What about developing nations, say, in Africa? They've already experienced the first blows of the grain and fertilizer shortage because of the shipments coming out of, of Ukraine uh, and of Russia and from Russia. As a result, a lot of African nations, but particularly Nigeria, have taken alternate steps. In Nigeria, they're using their vast energy industry to convert a portion of it to fertilizer production so that the country will be far more independent in future in the production of, of foodstuffs from local, using local uh, fertilizers. But it is going to have an impact, uh, as I say, everywhere because of uh, the short-term fluctuations in, in availability and, of course, the resultant increase in price. And how will this impact the Russia-Ukraine war itself? Well, it's shown that Russia has really had its gloves on during much of this conflict. The grain deal didn't really help Russia. Uh, it allowed Ukrainian vessels to leave harbor and, and, and export through the Black Sea. Uh, and, and Russia got nothing in return for that. Quite the contrary, uh, we saw the Ukraine government uh, press its advantage and actually work against Russia. There, was no, there were no compromises. This wasn't part of a, an overall amelioration of, of relations or a step toward ending the war. And Gregory, what does Russia want out of this deal? What does Russia want out of the deal? It, it doesn't have a deal. Uh, that was the whole point. It, it signed up to uh, the protection, if you like, of, of uh, Ukrainian grain and, uh, and fertilizer exports in the hope of uh, being seen to be moderate and, uh, and, and working towards a negotiated end of the war. They hoped to be seen as reasonable partners in resolving this dispute, but clearly that's been disregarded. The propaganda against Russia is so profound that they're, they're not going to uh, achieve anything by continuing with the, the grain deal with Ukraine. And is the West trying to get them back into the deal, though? No. The interesting thing is that uh, because of, of U.S pressures and particularly because of propaganda throughout Western Europe and the Western uh, countries, uh, there's no effort at all to get Russia into negotiations. Uh, the only uh, leaders that have tried that have been France with, because of the Normandy Accords, which uh, formally has Russia, Ukraine and France as uh, co-negotiators any, over any dispute, uh, but that's failed. Uh, and, and largely, uh, we see that President Zelensky, who's winning the tactical war but has no strategic depth or resources of, of his own, uh, keeps thinking, well, he can just keep squeezing this whole conflict out further and further, uh, even though there's no real strategy on the side of the West to end this war at all. Gregory Copley, thank you for joining us. Thank you. When we return, we'll meet the man who calls himself the Sausage King of Chicago. Find out how he brings a smile to everyone around him. Details to come on NTD News Today. Welcome back. The U.S. passport has dropped two spots to number eight on a list of the world's most powerful passports for 2023. The ranking is by London-based firm Henley & Partners. 
The Henley Passport Index measures global travel freedom in terms of how much visa-free and visa-on-demand access to the world different citizens enjoy. Japan was in the top spot for five years, but has been knocked down into third place with Singapore as the new title holder. Singapore's citizens can visit 193 destinations out of 227 around the world visa-free. Germany, Italy, and Spain have all moved up into second place with visa-free access to 190 destinations. Japan and South Korea share the number three slot with Austria, Finland, France, Luxembourg, and Sweden, each with access to 189 destinations. The United Kingdom has jumped two rankings to number four. The U.S. and U.K. jointly held the number one spot back in 2014. Sausages aren't often in the spotlight, but this next story may change that. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on a charismatic salesman who cheerfully sells cured meats out of his truck at bars and pubs. Army veteran Joe Pearl is a mobile meat merchant. He has been a fixture in Chicago and other parts of the Midwest for half a century. People call him G.I. Joe based on his time spent in the military. Pearl values having a good laugh with people and gets a kick out of them calling his emergency sausage number when they run out of his products. So I love my job, I love what I do, and I'm good at what I do. And I want to make people happy. I want to put a smile on their face. He regularly works 16-hour days in his lifelong journey to share meat with the masses. His father was also a traveling sausage salesman, so he's carrying on a family tradition. Pearl may very well be the last of a dying breed of mobile meat merchants. I've been doing it for uh, about 50 years. So it's, uh, it's in me. When I go, that's going to be it. My kids are doing other things. Pearl says it's the little perks that make it all worthwhile. I'd walk in a place, people would yell and scream, the sausage man's in here. And that's it. I would get the place, they're, they're sitting on the bar stools or whatever, then I'd get the whole place excited. G.I. Joe can be found on any given day at a Chicago bar near you, ready to put good food in your belly and a smile on your face. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Stomach pain can strike at any time. What could be causing it? We consider one factor often overlooked. Here's NTD's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Sometimes stomach issues can be hard to understand. If you didn't eat any problem foods or don't have a stomach bug, what could possibly be causing your digestive issues? It might be stress. Stress, especially chronic stress, raises the likelihood of gastrointestinal issues. It can impact the digestive system through the nervous system. It affects food movement and the balance of gut bacteria. Stress can also cause people to eat poorly, which may also lead to symptoms. Outside of the brain, the gut has the greatest area of nerves. Neurons lining the digestive tract signal muscle cells to contract. This helps to move food through breaking it down into nutrients and waste. The interaction between the enteric system in the gut and the central nervous system is known as the gut-brain axis. It may help explain why stress can cause digestive problems. According to the American Psychological Association, stress may exacerbate or increase the risk of bloating, burping and gas, heartburn, acid reflux, nausea and vomiting, diarrhea, constipation, ulcers and inflammatory bowel syndrome. Stress may contribute to bloating, burping and gassiness by making swallowing difficult. 
It can also slow the digestive process, allowing gut bacteria to create gas. Exercise may help to alleviate this. Emotional stress may lead to increased stomach acid production. This can lead to heartburn and acid reflux. To help alleviate these symptoms, avoid smoking, eat a healthy diet, eat smaller meals and avoid eating too close to bedtime. Stress hormones can also lead to diarrhea or constipation. Stress can divert blood away from the intestines and cause the digestive process to come to a halt. It's possible your stomach issues are caused by stress. Think about how potential stresses in your life could be manifesting in your gut and work on ways to manage them. An Oklahoma boy got an unusual bite on his lure while fishing in a neighborhood pond over the weekend. He reeled in a paku, a South American fish closely related to a piranha. Wildlife officials posted these pictures on social media. They say the exotic fish was likely somebody's unwanted pet that was dumped into the pond when it got too big for its tank. Paku can reach three and a half feet in length and can weigh nearly 90 pounds. The species is generally harmless to humans, but wildlife officials say they can be harmful to local wildlife that aren't accustomed to them. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Chris Beers.